Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, um, and that can be found on page 1148 of the Church Bibles. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and in the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate her from husband. But if she does not, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, but if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. I know I'm thin, but I'm not sure I could squeeze through that gap. Well, do keep your Bibles open before you. Um, Again, thank you so much uh, for your listening over these past uh, couple of weeks. And uh, particularly, if I may say, to the youth, I think it's uh, stuff here that certainly when I was probably your age, marriage, no way, uh, I'm I'm sleeping, I'm switching off right now. This is a nightmare for me. Um, So I confess that. So permission given if you decide to switch off, I get that. But having said that, it's a really interesting one because in my day, when I, was a, when I was your age, I just assumed that marriage was a norm and that marriage would be continue, I suppose, even within the Church of England as it, can, as it currently is. Well, it's up for grabs. This is one of those issues which actually, which actually is pertinent in a kind of different way because it's undermining the very authority of God. And I will also say to you that we're going to look at marriage, but there's also something in here about singleness. And so there's stuff, I think, for everyone if we, can, if we can kind of bear with what we're talking about 
this evening. Um, why don't we just pray, seek the Lord's help as we look at this together. Father, we are so very mindful that things we are looking at this evening are so very personal. And we know that we come, we come together around these issues, um, broken in so many ways. And we thank you, actually, that we're going to gather right at the end of our evening around the table, uh, which points to the ultimate marriage. And so we pray that you would lead us and you would guide us and that you would speak to us this evening. We ask in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I want to suggest to you that there are a few topics, more than sexuality and marriage, uh, that, um, that touch us deeply. I mean, marriage, in many ways, is a minefield, isn't it, of potential hurt and misunderstanding. Marriage and singleness, they, they touch on some of the most intimate parts of who we are. Now, we all have here a, a lot in common, but our stories are unique. Some of us have witnessed happy marriages. Some of us have not. Some of us are in happy marriages. Some of us are not. Some of us are single and are happy in our singleness. Others are single and long to be married. Some of us have been deeply wounded by the actions of others or how others, including in the church, have talked about things like sex, purity, singleness, and marriage. So I want to approach this topic of sexuality in relation to marriage and singleness with a lot of care as we look at this passage together this evening. Now, what is obvious from first glance at this passage is that the author could not possibly have been British. It is, let's be clear, a very open discussion of a very intimate and delicate subject. But they are important things before us this evening. We need to work through the material, not least because if we don't think our children and our neighbors, and the person sat next to us, if we don't think that they are being bombarded every day from our television screens, and the internet, and social media, and from friends and peers, with a very different picture of what sex and sexuality is like, or looks like, we are not paying attention. And you'll notice at the end of verse 5 that this whole area of sex and sexuality was a major battleground on one of the favorite targets of Satan that he was using to wreak havoc amongst the Corinthian church. And we ought to be clear, it is also a major battlefield in the spiritual war where Satan comes against us today as well. Now I want you to remember... From last time, at the end of chapter 6, Paul addressed the problem of some of the members of the Corinthian church whose view of sex was so liberal and unconstrained, they were actually visiting prostitutes. And they had the slogan, do you remember it? I have a right to do anything. In other words, they were saying that anything goes. And then there was another group who seemed to be in reaction, reaction to them, overreacting really, and they also have a slogan, you'll see it there in verse 1 of our passage. And they have swung all the way to the opposite extreme. And so their slogan is, 
it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's not a very catchy slogan, I grant you. I can't imagine it was all that popular as a catchphrase for that particular group. But nevertheless, it does sum up their teaching. And so we see these two extremes. On the one side, there was this kind of unguarded sexual promiscuity. And then on the other, there was a kind of prudish hostility, if you like, towards sex altogether. They saw it as dirty and unworthy of a Christian and always and also should be avoided. But taken together, and this is why we're looking at chapter 6 and 7 together, that presents a Christian vision of human sexuality that actually defies both extremes, holding out to us instead a, a beautiful picture of sexual union within the bonds of Christian marriage. Now, last week we talked about sex and we pointed out that God invented sex. God thinks sex is good. Your body belongs to Jesus. And in chapter 6, verse 20, we are commanded to honor God with our bodies. And the very first example of what we have just read, enjoy sex with your spouse. That's what the example, that's the application. But before we work through the verses, there are three words here that I want to show you in verse 5. And I want to show you them first so that we can avoid what have been repeated horrific misapplications of this passage. And in verse 5, the three words are by mutual consent. Now those are remarkable words given the culture of the time, given what the pagan world thought about male power and what it meant for the rightness of sexual demands over the week, by mutual consent. And everything that we are going to say tonight assumes that consent is essential. Now, in my early years as a trainee, uh, solicitor, those who know anything about the law, you kind of do six months in different seats. And I worked in the matrimonial department. And on one occasion, I took a statement from a victim of domestic abuse. And immediately, as I was listening to this statement, I recognized that this person, this abuser, was quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And one of his big claims was that our bodies weren't ours, but God's. Well, that is, isn't it, what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. And so the point is, is that we are to use our bodies in a godly way. We looked at it last week. But he twisted those words and went on to suggest that his wife's body was for him to use in whatever way he so chose. And he supported it by using a Bible verse. So before we, we work through these Bible verses together, I want us to know how these verses must not be used. These verses, they must not be used to put pressure on someone to do anything sexual that he or she does not want to do. Marital rape is still rape. A marital rape that uses Bible verses as a means of control is a terrible, evil thing to do to somebody. So it's really important, I think, as we set out on this journey, looking at these verses, we underline what it's not. Now, I'm mindful that some of the things the Bible has to say to us this evening may touch on deeply painful and 
personal areas of life. And that is simply because, you see, sex and relationships, they're not just appetites, as we have been saying. They are tightly bound into who we are as human bodies. And sex is the good, but powerful, purposeful, united glue of the Creator God. So we feel this very deeply. And the scope for getting this wrong is very deep. Now that's quite a long introduction, but I think it was important So let's have a look then again at these verses together by considering first the gift of marriage. Now as we've been talking about in these verses, the church in Corinth are suggesting it would be good if they didn't have sex. And I suspect that's based in their idea that bodies are unspiritual and the spiritual bit of you is better. And even though that Greek idea has actually faded over time, we have actually well over a thousand years of church history that has also peddled the idea that the holiest people are the ones who swear vows of chastity and go and live in monasteries and convents. And though that is rarer now, that is still going on and it still happens. And I suspect the sort of underlying, look-over-your-shoulder thing is universal, whatever you were brought up to think about monks and nuns. Because many marriages, if I'm honest, throw up opportunities every day to look over your shoulder and think, wouldn't life be easier without this man or woman in my life? And yet that, I want to suggest to us, is almost the point of marriage, isn't it? It is about the the mutual sharing of life with another human being who, like the first human being in that arrangement, in that marriage, is not perfect all the time. Two sinners, as Rob said. And in fact, is probably selfish most of the time. That's the truth be known. But the goal is each to give up their life for the other. And this, ultimately, it means to, to learn to bear with one another's limitations, or at least to see them as a means of teaching one more patience and grace. After nearly 27 years of married life this week, it'll be 27 years, on the 30th, I remembered the date, there you go. And, um, you know, I have realized one thing, that I am a liability around anything that requires a toolbox. I simply cannot be trusted. And I'm, I'm sure to either put the thing upside down or to blow it up or to, to, to spray paint the car the wrong color or eventually just turn around and ask Naomi for help. Naomi, she's been very patient and long-suffering over the years, looking at me with amusement, I hope. But no doubt at times it has driven her mad. Now, of course, that's a silly example at one level, but there will be things about the other person that can really lead you to have those moments when you find yourself kidding yourself that if only we weren't married. Well, we'd never argue with anyone, would we, if we weren't married? We would volunteer to serve with every waking hour of our life, and we would be spending hours every day reading the Bible and praying, wouldn't we? Now we can hark back to those student days and remember when we felt like we were really on it. But I realize as I, as I say these things, for some of us, 
the potential causes of, of tension within our marriages are so much more serious. You know, I, I do not wish to, to belittle those things or suggest that they can be you know, easily overlooked and overcome without a deep willingness to change and almost certainly look for help outside of the marriage. And when marriages are difficult in any way, Sex is one of the first areas that difficulties are seen, isn't it? And this is often the areas where we really need to, to hear from one another and where younger Christians need to talk to older Christians who are willing to be honest. But Paul here, let me assure you, he knows what he's talking about and he gives good advice and he lays out a very clear balance of priorities in a married life. So let me just run through some of that very, very quickly. Verse 2. Verse 5, it talks there about sexual immorality or the temptation of Satan. You see, these Corinthians thought that they could just turn their bodies off and then they'd be super holy Christians. But you see, sexuality is just designed into our bodies. And the God-given plan for sexual activity is marriage. So to try and live married in a relationship that is designed to be sexual but without sex is an invitation for temptation. For Satan to tempt both or one of the spouses to unfaithfulness. And notice the goal he is aiming at when he says, married people enjoy sex with each other. Do you notice the goal? He's aiming to help those people within marriage to avoid sexual immorality. And notice also it doesn't say anything goes as long as your spouse is in the room. So there is a thing such as sinful sex with your spouse or lustful thoughts during sex with your spouse. Now, there was talk in the media in recent years that pornography was acceptable as part and parcel of, of a sex in relationships. And yet you'll notice that there has been in recent years a massive backlash against this. And pornography is now understood, even in the secular world, as one of the most destructive forces in marriages and committed relationships. It wreaks havoc on intimacy, destroys trust, and creates hosts, a host of other problems. And it's a secret addiction that often remains hidden from loved ones. And this will be an issue for some here this evening. And if that is you, Please know that the bravest thing that you can do tonight is to be honest about it. Last week, you remember that we received the instruction from Scripture to, to flee from sin. And that can only begin if you admit the issue in your life and the danger it is placing you in. And Paul says no to such things. He is recommending loving, mutual, exclusive, God-honoring, self-giving sex as the alternative to sexual immorality. And then he explains that mutual self-giving of marriage using extraordinary language, challenging language. So verse 3 is about duty. Verse 4 is about authority. And verse 5 says deprive. 
And notice the gender balance is absolute here. So verse 4 says, something true about the wife. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. Then it says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now that would have been extraordinary in their culture, and even in ours. Now the reality is, in British embarrassment culture, having a conversation about sex in marriage is difficult and can be deeply emotionally painful. But every Hollywood film and every magazine offering to fix your sex life, they all assume, actually, that the answer is more selfishness. You see, the goal of sex is your body and to give your body the most amazing experience possible. Whereas Paul invites both spouses to see their bodies as a gift to the other person and sex as a sacrificial act from both of you. It's utterly countercultural. Allow me to put it this way. See, Paul is teaching us that ordinarily, sex within marriage is a Christian way of serving one another. And the way that he speaks about it, there's something actually profoundly Christ-like here in this pattern of mutual service and self-giving that Paul describes. Christ, you remember? He gave himself for his bride, giving himself up for her. That is how he loves his bride, the church. He does not stand on his rights, but voluntarily surrenders them for the good of his bride. And that was his pattern throughout his earthly ministry. He would surrender his prerogatives, taking the form, as Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant. So there's a gospel pattern, Paul is saying, then in marriage. Even within sexual union, within marriage, of self-giving for the good of the other, of surrendering for the good of the other, not demanding, not standing on what we perceive to be our due. Sex, Paul says, is a beautiful thing, part of God's design that dramatizes and pictures the gospel itself when it is rightly ordered in God's economy. It ultimately points to our Creator. Well, just one final thought then under this point. Now, whatever we make of of that concession there in verse 5 and 6 to give up sex for for a season to pray, what is absolutely clear here is is that Paul expects Christian couples to be praying together. Do you notice that? He expects them to understand that there is a higher claim upon their marriage that may even at times intrude upon their regular routine and cause them to reorder their priorities. The Lord Jesus, you see, has prior claim upon your marriages. Our marriage is for him. I wonder, do you pray together? Those of us who are Christians and are married, do you pray together? Do you find ways in which to give honor to Jesus Christ? Would someone, let's say a a non-Christian looking in, could they observe from the way you behave and from the rhythm of your life that you are children of God for whom Jesus Christ has has first claim over every other? Is your marriage a distinctively Christian marriage? Does Jesus Christ reign as Lord between you and over you and in your home? 
Okay, we've seen the gift of marriage, and we're going to keep moving, and uh, we're going to look secondly at the gift of singleness, verse 7 to 9. Now you'll notice here, and I think it's very pastoral, I think Paul is speaking about marriage, but he understands that probably 50% of of his congregation, as tonight, are, are single people. He's a pastor, and he pauses and he stops and he says, now look, there's been this short interlude. We've been looking at marriage. Now it's going to be a short interlude. I'm going to talk about singleness for a moment. You remember, we're going to come back in, a, in sort of the fifth of, of, of these five sermons, and we'll look particularly at singleness, and that's from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. But I just want to say a few words tonight, or at least let's see what Paul has to say to us for those who are single. Now, I think, i think we are honest with you, I, I've done this. This is me. Um, I'm not pointing fingers. But I think a lot of life is lived looking over our shoulder, thinking, if only I was like them. You know, I would, be a, I would be a great Christian if I had their, their life. I'd be a good Christian if my health was better, if I had different neighbors, different flatmates. You know, there's something in my life that's sort of holding me back as a Christian. I just need to fix it. Maybe even what you're thinking is I need God to go out and fix it for me. And then I really could get going as a Christian. And in chapter 7, we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks, where, you know, we're going to see that we cover an enormous amount of ground. There is status and race and job, and, and then there's a, this wide range of relationship status of single, married, divorced, widowed, engaged, or, or married to someone who is not a Christian. And in Corinth, it seems right across that range, you had people who wished that they could be someone else. You know, I'd be a good Christian if I was Jewish. We'll see that next week. You know, I'd be a good Christian if I was single. I'd be a good Christian once I get married. And I don't think this will be a 2,000-year-old issue for people who are with us tonight. Just as pertinent, isn't it? And Paul has something startling and radical but simple to say to us. And we'll see next week that he means it even in really hard circumstances. And this is what he has to say. Why not be a good Christian where you are now? In whatever situation you find yourself in now. Now, Rather than looking over your shoulder at the things you want to fix, why not start now and serve God where you are? Serve God here. He wants them to see what is good about every circumstance. God is good. God gives us good things. Could that really include all of the things talked about in this chapter? Could that be a gift from God? Could God really intend for me to live for him here? So that's our our starting point. It does not, of course, take account of abusive situations that we may well find ourselves in tonight. Whether in marriage or whether in the workplace, as we'll think about next week. So as we've been thinking, we know that marriage is intended for good and it's also a gift from God. However, a lot of us haven't personally experienced marriage, but all of us have experienced singleness. Now, I think many of us acknowledge marriage as a gift, but I wonder how many of us really, you know, really see singleness, not only as a gift from God, but potentially better. That's why Paul says there in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. As Christians, you know, we want to, to please God in all areas of life. We talk, don't we, about honoring God with our, in our studies, in our subject, honoring God in our, our workplace. But for those of us who are single here this evening, how can, how can we honor, how can you honor yourself, honor God in that regard? 
How can we love God in that regard and please him in that regard? Now, in Genesis, we're, we're, we're told there that it is not good for man to be alone. And marriage, of course, was established out of this principle. And this doesn't mean, of course, we know this, I hope, that doesn't mean that everyone is to be married. But it does mean he wants everyone to be in community. We're told that we are made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in relationship, who are in community. That is what we're made an image of. So there's an assumption that we will be in community. We were created for family. Romans 8 verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus, you see, the Son of God, is the first member of a new family, a family made up principally of brothers and sisters. So our new identity as Christians comes from being brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We are restored as sons and daughters of God. And so Christ's intimacy with the Father is now also our intimacy with the Father. Not only ourselves, but every believer is now sharing in this intimacy with God. And so we are all partakers of the new family. And so this is really important. Jesus radically changes the idea of family. Jesus reconfigures how we are to think about family. His real family is defined along spiritual rather than biological lines. We become part of his family when we follow the will of God. And being single reminds us that the church is our primary family. See, being single does not mean that we retreat from community. While singleness also displays a a radical dependence upon Christ, you're also dependent, are you not, upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are made to be vulnerable with one another, to share your struggles and joys together. But this surely has got to be two-sided. The married community has a duty to play its part in enabling and welcoming this and to be vulnerable with our single brothers and sisters. It's only through vulnerability that we can come together as one. Now, we had a remarkable evening with Ed Shaw earlier in the year. And what struck me was the way he viewed his singleness as a gift from God. But what struck me even more was the way that he understood family. I know from speaking to some friends here in the church, when we talk from the front about family, you know, it's great, isn't it, to to gather this evening as a family. They can hear families. It's a gathering of of the nuclear families in the church. But Ed, in his church, when he uses or hears that term family, he hears something very different. He talks about this and he said, you know, the church uh, that, his, that he pastors has opened its home and its heart and its lives to him. He's intimately involved with different families going on holiday with families, being a godparent. One family realized that as a single man in ministry, he was never going to be able to afford a, a property, so they helped him buy one, helped him get a mortgage. It's a church that sees one another not as married or single but as brothers and sisters. Wouldn't that be great? We are setting out some aspirational goals, I guess. Wouldn't that be great that as a church, 
we thought like that, so that many of our assumptions, because this is what happens, many of our assumptions, what they do actually is they presuppose the normativity of marriage. But we fail sometimes to give singleness the same normativity. Wouldn't it be great if we corrected that? You know, it's so important that we remember that there are many who have chosen Christ first and have made a sacrifice to singleness, whether from being same-sex attracted or because they refuse to be unequally yoked to, in a heterosexual relationship with unbelievers. And for them, that's how singleness has become the norm for them. So why as a church, let's, let's work at this, at normalizing singleness and marriage. And let's remember that we are first and foremost brothers and singles and, and sisters. Now maybe today you are struggling with lifelong same-sex attraction. And as you seek to walk in holiness and trust in Jesus, you know that for you the path of faithfulness will entail a life of celibacy and singleness. Now, maybe you're sitting here this evening and you would love nothing more than to find your life's partner. And yet God in his providence has simply not led in that direction. I really want you to hear something very, very clear this evening. In the mind of Paul, there is no possibility of a hierarchy of married and single. If anything, as Paul will teach us later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, singleness is actually a higher calling than marriage and should be seen as such in the church, which historically it always has been. Now, Sam Albury, we know Sam, says this, Singleness is a way of saying that my marriage to Christ is so sufficient that it is so rich and satisfying I can do without human marriage in this age. And let me add, that is not to assume it is therefore easy. Now having said all of, all of this, and I think it's important to note at verse 9 how Paul quickly qualifies his teaching. And he says, look, not everyone is called and gifted for singleness. For some, the fight for sexual purity is overwhelmingly difficult. And so Paul says, if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what we've got here this evening, in this text, we've got Paul setting out for us the binary pattern of the Christian life. Celibacy in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. I'm very conscious, we've got the communion table, our time has gone, uh, but I would just like to to plead with you just for a few more minutes, uh, just to offer a few concluding thoughts. So let me just uh, look, if I may, finally, thirdly, at the challenge of marriage from verse 10 to 16. Now these, these are verses about the particular difficult situation of a marriage when one of the partners has become a Christian. So two people who are not Christians have got married and then one has become a Christian and, and most of us will know people in that situation and we know that it can lead to very significant mistreatments of the new, of the, new Christian for their choice for Jesus. And there are people here even this evening who will have lived through such an experience. But these verses here address the situation where the non-Christian spouse is willing to stay married. But the Christian is worried that somehow uh, that will sort of spiritually hold them back. They won't reach their full potential, I suppose, as a spiritual Christian. And, 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 and while, they're, uh, while they're living with somebody who, who's not. 
And again, Paul repeats, notice that general advice. He says to the Christian in this situation, the work of, you know, you know, he says encouraging things. And he says, first of all, the work of making you holy, it has been done. It's already done. So powerfully that, it, that verse 14, it tells you, it even extends to your spouse somehow. And it certainly extends to the children. These children, we know, are, are covenant children. And we know, don't we, of situations where that has been and the children have grown up to know the Lord and have flourished. So what Paul is saying here is that while it won't make any difference maybe to the difficulties of Sunday morning, you know, just, I'm just going to take the church, the children to church this morning. Do you have to? It doesn't make any difference to the challenge of kind of attending the, the midweek Bible study or fellowship group when your spouse just thinks you've gone mad. You know, where was the person I married since you became a Christian? But it does make a huge difference to the whole area of spiritual anxiety. You know, God did not make a mistake when you became a Christian. You trusted in him. You were holy and justified, sanctified, washed. The language of chapter 6. And the non-Christian status of your spouse makes no difference to that. And there in verse 15 and 16, maybe the non-Christian will leave. And sadly, that does happen. But if not, verse 16 gives, some, gives the same advice where it says you are to pray for their conver conversion. And it may be, even this evening, that there is someone who finds themselves in that situation. And, and you know, you're wondering, well, what, what can I do? I find it very frustrating and difficult at so many times. But, but, you know, what the Lord says here is pray for them. It's a real evangelistic opportunity. Don't look over your shoulder. Look to Jesus. Well, let me end then, finally, with these concluding remarks. You know, I am persuaded. I'm, I'm old enough now. I'm getting to that point in my life where I've seen all sorts of things. And I ask myself sometimes, what is the most powerful witness? I think, honestly, brother and sister, I think this is a massive, massive witness to us as we, as we stand in this day and age. I'm absolutely persuaded that one of the best witnesses that we can offer are confused, and it is confused, our soul-sick society that is heading headlong into ever-increasing sexual chaos and confusion. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. I think one of the best ways we can bear witness in that society is to display humble, servant-hearted, gospel-shaped, tender, intimate, lifelong, enduring Christian marriages where there is no controlling, abusive demands, where there is no belittling manipulation. And where we can display humble, servant-hearted, gospel-shaped, contented, single lives, pleasing to God and deeply honoring Him, rooted in community that equally affirms the goodness of both marriage and singleness, and where both support one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That will be a powerful witness to Fullwood and to Sheffield if we can live like that, let me tell you. Far more powerful than any words that we utter. People see and they note, are these people steady? Are they content? Are they secure in their, their identity? Now, while the world thinks that Christians, they think that we are sexually repressed prudes, obsessed with sex uh, that we're not allowed to have. Let me say to all of us, we need to recover a biblical vision that delights in God's wonderful design for the joyful union of one man and one woman, married for life. 
or his vision for a beautiful, fulfilled, single life out in community and contentment out of our union with Christ. When we begin not only to believe that but live it by the grace of God, what a testimony we will bear. How countercultural we will be and what a beautiful thing it will be to see how the gospel reorders our lives and the world may know it can reorder theirs also through the hope of the gospel held out by a church that believes in the redeeming work of Christ. Amen.